The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on your location. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another edition of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We have, as many of you know, made an effort to uh, bring relevance to the realm of archaeology and ancient history, if you will. And uh, we also tend to key our presentations and our programming to events that are of a certain currency. And right now, one of the major currencies that we need to talk about, and one that has intrigued a lot of our listenership in the past, is the question of the Olympic Games, which have just ended in Sochi and uh, in, 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 uh, in Russia. And what we'd like to do today is sort of get some historic and ancient background to the Olympic tradition. And my guest today, and I'm very pleased to have him, is Dr. Thomas Scanlon, who is the Department Chair and Professor of Classics and Comparative Ancient Civilizations and Literature at the University of California, Riverside. Uh, Dr. Scanlon's interests are in the area of Greek and Roman literature and culture, using archaeology and classic literature sort of as a backdrop, and he specializes on themes that involve religion, gender, mythology, and, of course, the center of today's presentation, ancient sports. And he has also obviously uh, been involved in the traditional uh, teaching of ancient civilization, uh, the discussion, discussions of ancient literature, philosophy of the Greeks and, and uh, their successors, the Romans. It is my uh, pleasure to welcome you, Dr. Scanlon, to our program. Thank you, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I'm delighted to kind of follow on the heels of the Sochi Olympics and make connections to 2,000-plus years ago. Uh, yes, go ahead. And, and that, you know, that, that, that's very funny because one of the things that just cropped into my head here as we talked about it, um, uh, whether or not, that, I, I don't, this is a sort of very black humor, but is it common for the Olympics to, to end and then all of a sudden to go to war? Because that seems to be, <laughs> that seems to be what's going on. It, 
it's very it's a sort of very ancient scenario i mean it's you know the greeks uh they say that you know the the idea of peace uh in the greek world was the exception and that war was the sort of normal state of of affairs exactly so <laughs> So is this ringing true in this day and age? It, I mean, is it, that what's going it on here? Seriously and sadly is. Uh, and, uh, you know, this, these the hostilities that are breaking out in the Ukraine right now are actually, you know, quite close to Sochi. Uh, and it may be coincidence, but that's the way it was in the ancient world. There was a lot of hostility around the Olympic area. But interestingly, like uh, Sochi, the, the site of Olympia was in southern Greece, in the Peloponnese, and it was quite isolated from uh, major, you know, metropolitan areas. It was really in the in the wilds and in the very peaceful area that was, you know, pastoral. So um, it was, in, in a sense, immune from hostilities. But the uh, the famous thing is that there's an Olympic, sometimes called Olympic peace. Uh, it's a real misnomer. It's really the Olympic truce. Uh, in which there was a cessation of hostilities. Uh, that's people say there was a cessation of hostilities while the games went on. But actually, what happened was they swore a truce that they would not uh, make warfare with uh, certainly the people who were hosting the games, who were constantly the same people. They would also uh, observe the sanctity of pilgrims when they were going to the games and coming from the games. So it was really that you wouldn't bring hostility to Olympia and you wouldn't touch the people coming and going. But you could have warfare all over the place around the Olympics. And that didn't mean all, all warfare stopped, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, so it was, it was a truce. It was a laying down of arms. And, and sometimes it wasn't observed. And sometimes uh, occasionally, you know, people were um, sort of attacked and there were hostilities on one occasion actually went to the Olympic Games where there was fighting in the uh, Olympic Stadium area and um, there were people were throwing spears from the Temple of Zeus and it was a real mess but it was only on one occasion that happened um, uh, so yeah it, but like I say the other interesting point with regard to hostility in the Olympics is that the Olympics had, you know, in its fullest form in, in the ancient world. Um, it, uh, let me frame this. The Olympics, uh, the legendary time frame for it was 776 BCE, and they ran for about a thousand years until about 300 CE. Uh, so that, at the high point of those games, from some about the 400s on, uh, had a number of events, and the final event always in the Olympic Games was the uh, the race in armor. And uh, some guys would be running around the stadium with armor on, and they would have a helmet, and they'd have a shield, and they'd have greaves on their on their ankles, on their uh, shins, and um, that was meant to that was meant to, to be the end of the games. But it was to also remind people that hostilities were about to begin again. It was the whole a whole another kind of combat was about to take place. That uh, is symbolic, I guess. Yes, it was, and it wasn't wasted on the Greeks. They knew that this was uh, a, a real sort of interesting and uh, sort of symbolic uh, reentree to to real life. 
to reality. Uh, to yeah. reality. Yeah, and the other thing I, I could mention archaeologically about the Olympic site is that there were there are lots and lots of dedications all around the site of the of the sacred temple of Zeus itself uh, with armor dedicated and helmets and um, also trophies set up that were dedicated for a military victory of one Greek city over another Greek city. So, so far city. from being like this haven of peace and right. tranquility, it was, it was advertising your military victories. Yeah, in this case, it would be city-state warfare, right? Because these are obviously right. uh, city-states that, that were trying to one-up each other. I guess the, uh, you know, again, I didn't plan to sort of uh, extend the, the war analogy <laughs> to the contemporary, yeah. but I think, and, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this now that we're developing the theme. I mean, if you recall, it was just a couple of months ago, the major concern was terrorism and, and factionalism associated with the Chechens and the Russians. And now all of a sudden the Russians are into a totally new game going into the Ukraine. I mean, I, I don't know if this has any analogy, but it's sort of the, the thematic purviews of war have changed as well. You get uh, you get the, the terrorist uh, threats, then you get the Olympics, and now all of a sudden a new international focus, again centered on Russia. I don't know that that has any parallels to anything. Yeah, so. I, you know, I think, I, just, I think this is really getting to the heart of a lot of what ancient sports were about, certainly the Greek sports. And that was a kind of display of machismo um, that was done safely in, on the stadium floor uh, and, uh, you know, on the, on the horse race course and so on, uh, sort of venting that part and also taking pride in your particular city-state. But, um, yeah, it, it would lash out into warfare in various forms, and, and um, it, it was only put on hold for those, you know, those few days that the games went on. So what? Yeah, I think what I see, what I saw with Russia in the Olympics itself, there was a lot of pride on the line, and you know Putin was sitting there in the stands and sort of taking pride in victories and sort of scowling at defeats, as far as you could see. But uh, the you know and the, and the Russians, one had this impression that gosh, they they'd better win these events or. They, or, or there would be dire consequences, and there was one little controversy even about the judges of a skating event. Yes, I was going to bring uh, that up. Right. Yeah, yeah. The ju the Russian judges sort of were substituted in, and some of them, um, you know, this this skater got a gold medal in the end. So there was some dubiousness about that, but I don't know. Um, I I think it was done by lottery. So, but it could have been a fixed lottery. Who knows? Um, so I guess my point here is there's, a, there's certainly a politics of the games themselves when they're going on, and um, that, that translates into national pride. And certainly, you know, none of, none of our countries today are immune from national pride, but Russia certainly showed that at its Olympics and then carried it over, you know, to a, in a whole different venue to um, this current conflict. Um, you know, with the with the same sort of aggressive attitude that you know one has in sports, it can be transferred to warfare, and 
it, you know, can if you're defending your country, it's a good thing. If you're being an aggressor, it's not. Clearly, I mean, what you're seeing, and 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 certainly in recent memory, it's it's uh, this this sort of infusion of extreme nationalist pride seems to be associated with with the major dictators Hitler in 36 and uh and and Soviets in 72 and right. and now and now Putin not riding naked on his horse but nevertheless yeah. uh coming by and and basically trying to reassert himself all over the place but let's get back to to a topic that I think a lot of people are very interested in and I'm sure you've been asked this many times before the origins of the Olympic Games. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Well, first of all, it's very unclear, um, but I'm, don't worry. I'm not going to be too ambiguous here. As I said, the traditional date is 776 BCE. Now, that's based on one author uh, who had reasons for taking that date, and it's, it's a weird date. I mean, if you kind of pull out of the air, but it was first written down in the 400s BCE that this was the origin date. Um, and uh, the best theory I've heard is that that date was was predated by adding three the three hundred years onto four seventy six, and four seventy six was the first big Olympics after the Greeks had defeated the Persians in the Persian Wars. And here we right. go back to warfare again. <laughs> but it was an attempt. Of course, yeah. <laughs> it was an attempt to sort of link uh, the 300th anniversary of the origins of these games with the, you know, the, the liberation games after they had defeated, you know, the nasty barbarians and sent them packing back to Persia. And so, um, you know, that anyway, I, who knows if that's correct uh, exactly why this, this author, whose name was Hippias, uh, who's also a philosopher, uh, wrote down this chronology. But and let's, you know, talk archaeology here for a minute. Um, and there, there are finds at the site of Olympia that go back to uh, the 900s BCE, the, the 10th century and the 9th century. So they go uh-huh. way before the 700s. And um, there's, there are little god statues and little clay statues and so on. So there's some indication something was going on there earlier. In fact, there are dedications of very expensive items like bronze tri- tripods that might be three feet high, and have, they're very expensive, uh, you know, quality objects. And uh, I think the, um, the the hypothesis is that there were people, there were kings, leaders, and so on, coming to this little place to worship Zeus before there were formal games. Now, there might have been informal games. They may have they come there in their chariots, and they say, oh, let's have a chariot race or whatever. Uh, and I really believe this kind of stuff was happening before there were formal games linked to to the what we call the Olympics. Um, and the other thing that really attracted people to Olympia wasn't just the Temple of Zeus and he's king of the gods, but there was an oracle. Most people don't know this. There was an oracle that you ask your fortune uh, there at Olympia. And so a lot of people would come there to ask, you know, questions about, should I found a new colony? Should I go to war? You know, what should, or should we establish a new constitution? All these big, important questions that people would come to Olympia to ask. So, uh, and somebody's done an article on this, but in fact, the, the, one of the chief excavators of Olympia, whose name is Ulrich Sinn, a German guy, mm-hmm. has written a, a really wonderful article on the connection of the oracle 
with uh, the Greek people of that era and the city-states coming before the games. And so then when eventually the importance of the oracle declined and the importance of the Delphic oracle increased elsewhere in Greece, Mm -hmm. uh, Olympia sort of needed to find a new identity. And so they kind of latched on to these uh, elite games, the people, you know, the wealthy people coming there. And they decided, well, let's have some games that are regularly honor Zeus. And, and uh, it was a strange thing to do to connect uh, like a foot race with a god. <laughs> of course. Because prior to that in Homer, of course, you have um, Homer again. Interestingly, Homer's writing the Iliad and Odyssey in the 700s BCE. So people say, oh, well, you know, Homer was writing this stuff down about the Trojan War. And he had Olympic games, or he had, sorry, he had games, he had festival games in his epics, and mostly they were informal, sort of one was after dinner games, one was a funeral game uh, that Achilles held for uh, Patroclus in the Iliad, uh-huh. his, his buddy Patroclus. So, uh, but these were not games in honor of some god, they were human games, and um now, there, weirdly, there's no reference in Homer to the Olympics. If the Olympics did start in the 700s, and Homer was writing later in the 700s, you'd expect some allusion to it. Absolutely. And I've, I've actually found one passage where I've, I've written an article on this where I think there is an allusion to the Olympics, uh, where they talk about the region around Olympia, and there were uh, funeral games there, and people took their chariot there and competed. And Homer wasn't stupid. He knew that he couldn't say uh, the Olympic Games were in the time of the Trojan War, because they weren't, clearly. So he kind of fudged it and put in a little bit of PR for the Olympics by mentioning the local city there, Elis, um, in the, uh, and the chariot races that were held there for a funeral game. So I think essentially what I'm saying is that even Homer um, sort of alludes to the fact that there were some early games there in the 700s. So, uh, but, you know, my other take on the real origin of the Olympics is even if they began in the 700s, the, the whole um, narrative of that is that the original games for the first almost 100 years were simply a foot race, maybe two foot races, uh, not very exciting, and it only takes sort of you know, uh, sort of fifteen minutes to have that event and get it over with. So uh, the Olympics didn't really start to grow in the number of events and in popularity until around six hundred uh, BC. So we're, we're one hundred and seventy, hundred fifty years later before things start to really become popular. And my theory is on this, and I have an article on Homer and the Olympics, is that Homer helped to uh, bolster the popularity of sports in ancient Greece, because he had Homer described heroes sort of fighting it out for honor and glory when they weren't at battle, and just playing these games and, you know, showing their machismo. And I think when those legends of Homer became really popular, and we're talking here by the 600 or 500s BCE when Homer started to be circulated widely, 
um, people said, hey, I want to be like an Olympic, uh, like a Homeric hero. I want to get out there and pretend like I'm, I'm Achilles or Agamemnon and uh, compete. And so the hero athlete became an image of the Homeric hero. And that really bolstered the popularity of the Olympics when they started adding lots of events and lengthened the, um, the, the whole festival in the 500s. I think that's really when it started to, to heat up and become the Olympics the way we think of it today. And we will be back with our guest, uh, Dr. Thomas Scanlon, and continue our fascinating discussion on the evolution and emergence and success of the Olympic Games right after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with our guest, Dr. Thomas Scanlon, the department chair and professor of classics 
and Comparative Ancient Civilizations at the University of California, Riverside. And we've been talking about the evolution of the Olympic Games against the backdrop of Sochi. And we've also talked about some of the uh, political analogies, especially the relationship of war and machismo and uh, the uh, rather stark comparisons to, to ancient, between ancient Greece and, and Russia in, in this particular point in time. And uh, Tom Scanlon has, has referenced the fact that the Olympics started out very small uh, basically being a series of foot races back in, in seven, 776 B.C. And in a case of uh, light, art, art imitating life and going into a cycle of, of feedback and imitation, um, he pointed out that one of the most significant, uh, the, perhaps the most significant impetus for the expansion of the Olympic Games was Homer's popularization of those games, which was taking us basically into the fluorescent of the Greek Empire. So, uh, Tom, why don't you take us into the emergence of the various events? And, and another question I think a lot of people should know something about and get familiar with is the, the geopolitical situation at the time, which was, seri was the series of city-states in, in Greece and how these functioned as, as separate polities. And uh, if you could take that and expand it into how the internationalism of the Olympic Games emerged because of the original organization of the city-states, that would be very helpful as well. So I know that's a lot to give you, but uh, I'm sure you're up to it, so take it away. Well, uh, so we were, you know, as I was saying, the uh, Olympics really had a boost from Homer, and around the 500s BC, and the games, again, they went from supposedly the 700s BCE to about 300 CE. Um, but around the 500s, things really started to take off in terms of this weird thing of putting sports with a religious festival. I mean, who would think of connecting those things? Sure. Well, the Greeks did it. And, uh, and again, uh, the reasons aren't really clear, except you get a lot of people together for a big religious festival. You've got to have something on the side. And you sure. sort of say that also this is actually doing honor to the God. Somehow you are dedicating yourself to the God, and you're not getting any material reward. You're getting a, an olive crown that's cut from a sacred tree that's next to the Temple of Zeus. And it's the honor of that that you carry back to your homeland. So um, in terms of the that, – and that was the way it was done for the entire thousand-year history of these games. But in terms of the growth of the games in the 500s and the 400s BCE, let's say, um, it really took off uh, from some weird reason. I think, again, Homer, the spread of the reading of Homer and the reciting of Homer mm -hmm. in this period made it very popular, so much so that the Olympics found themselves all of a sudden surrounded by some other games that were taking place all over the Greek world. It wasn't just the Olympics. Uh, of course, the Greeks always played sports uh, apart from festivals. They, had, they did have games for a few funeral games for, for fallen heroes and, and civic mm -hmm. leaders. But um, in the 500s, there was a proliferation of games alongside the, these big formal Olympics. Uh, they had three other big festivals that sprung up in the five, 580s and 570s BCE. And those were at Delphi, the, the Pythian Games. They were called for Apollo. 
the Isthmian Games, uh, like the word Isthmus, the Isthmian Games were for um, were Poseidon's Games at Corinth, which is near the sea there, a big tr- trading area. Uh-huh. And the Nemean Games, which are in the Peloponnese, and they were also for Zeus. They were kind of like a smaller version of the Olympics. But all, all four of these these major festivals, uh, the other three started in the early 500s, and so along with the Olympics, we have what they call the Big Four, what we call the Big Four Games. They were, uh, the, the, the Greeks uh, would call them the Pan-Hellenic Games, which means all Greek games. They weren't just a local festival, they were for all the Greeks. And uh, the actual, technically, the Greek name for them were the crown games, the Stephanitic games, the crown games, because all you got was a crown of whatever right. the local foliage was. So it was a, so, but you notice that the pattern here is that there are big religious centers that wanted to promote their festivals and had the, the sort of clout to do it, and they connected it with games. So, um, yeah. But my question to you is, my question to you though is, is the reach of the games and the appeal of the games, did it extend beyond the the Greek city-state heartlands, or was it really were the units, the competitive units, if you will, were they the Greek city-states, or did the reach extend beyond the the uh, the more immediate Greek empire? Um, well, in terms of. Um in, in in the growth of the games, let's say in this uh, 500, 400, it was it was all Greek. It was it was right. Greek, Greek, and Greek. And in fact, they wouldn't let people compete unless they were Greeks. They had to speak Greek. They had to be right. native Greeks. The, mm-hmm. But as time went on, uh, and there were all of these city states, as you know, there are many hundreds of city states throughout That's the Greek I mean, world. Yeah. They went from southern Italy and Sicily in the west to in central Greece uh, to the eastern Mediterranean region of what is now Turkey mainly, where right. there were Greek settlements. And uh, the, again, the Greek-speaking people, the native Greek colonies from the would all come and compete in these games, and they would all bring with them the badge, you know, figuratively the badge of what city they came from. And so there's so much uh, riding on your civic identity with your city-state right. that when you got a victory and all you got was this silly little crown, you go back home and they would give you a bundle of money. I mean, it's like today when you get promotions from winning, winning a gold medal, all you get is a gold medal from the Olympics, but you get millions of dollars if you're successful in promoting yourself after the Games. Games. So, so they would get, for instance, that... At Athens, they would give their their winners, their their medal winners, or their crown winners, um, you know, full room and board for the rest of their lives, and enough money to be put into the the elite millionaire class. So, <laughs> so was there one city state that generally, or was a periodic winner, or that that basically carried the torch of success for much of the period? Um, well, at the beginnings, again in the five hundreds and. Uh, in the earlier, in some 600s and 500s, it was Sparta. Sparta, uh-huh. which is the big military state. Makes and sense. Makes <laughs> sense. Sort of a communistic type society where they take yeah. the children away and educate them and, and so on. And they really trained them hard. And, and uh, yeah, so they were quite successful early on. But then all of a sudden they kind of tailed off. 
and in the 400s and so on, there wasn't really a dominant, you know, like one city that, that won most of the, the, the crowns, the way we sort of count how many medals each country gets. Uh, from, from what we know, and again, you know, how do we know who won? Well, there, there are victors mentioned in uh, authors, especially in Pausanias, um, and there some guys comp- compiled a list of all known Olympic victors, of course, and uh, exactly when they competed. So we have a pretty good idea, although we only have maybe at most 20-some percent of all the known people who might have won a crown. Uh, we have a pretty good demographic about the spread of participation. And as time went on, people from, I said, from Asia Minor and Italy, Sicily, but also from uh, from North Africa, from Egypt, uh, and from as far away as you know the Black Sea area. People were coming in and competing in these games, and uh, even some Romans were actually. You're supposed to be Greek to compete in the Olympics, but right. Roman uh, Romans and Roman emperors even occasionally competed in these games. And of course, they gave them a dispensation. You, you know, you're, we'll allow you to compete, but not anybody else. Sort of. Right. What about the sports that were represented, and how did those change over the course in time? Yeah, they, uh, as I say, the original event was a foot race, supposedly. Uh, I think there probably were maybe chariot races on the side that weren't part of the original program officially, but were going on. And then, as time went on, they added. Um, Wrestling, boxing, and a combination of wrestling and boxing, kind of like a, a martial art called uh, pancration, which is like the ultimate fighting that we have today, um, and pretty brutal. Uh, so the, those three, wrestling, boxing, pancration, were called the combat sports, or the, the Greeks called them the heavy events, because everybody who competed was heavy. Right. Um, <laughs> so uh, those events were added. Um, and were pretty brutal. People did die in them. Um, they had a, a full range of, of foot races of different distances, but not the marathon. The marathon's a modern invention. We right. can talk about that later if you want. But so, so the uh, uh, and I mentioned the race in armor at the end of the foot races. But they also had races, uh, chariot races, and horse races of various kinds of horses and chariots. And they had a division between boys' events and men's events um, that filled out the whole program. So these programs, at their fullest, were going on for five, maybe seven days from start to finish. And you've got to imagine something like 40,000 people in the stadium at Olympia and maybe another ten or 20,000 who couldn't get into the stadium. So you had this one spot with, you know, 50,000, 60,000 people mm-hmm. uh, around Olympia once every four years uh, for, these, for these games. And they came from all over Greece. Um, interesting one little tidbit that people don't know usually is that one of the things that Olympia was famous for was for doing deals. And there were all kinds of deals you could do. One of them was finding um, mercenary soldiers to fight your war. So you would con- you would find people there who would contract with you to send X number of, of uh, military for pay to help you fight your war. Uh, and so 
Um, so that's Again, not, that not too different from what happens in this day and age. I mean, uh, business people getting together, uh, such a worldwide event, drawing together various business interests, you know, in a different way, I'm sure, but certainly a pro- oh, yeah. as a, a promotional event and probably very consciously done so after a certain point in time, I would think. Right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And you've got to remember, too, that not everybody could afford to take whatever the three weeks off it would take to get there and get back and go to the games. Of course. So it, you had to be wealthy. You had to have some kind of wealth, at least you know, upper middle class kind of thing. Um, so, And people would bring their slaves with them and so on. And um, But these were the elite, and they would do deals. They would talk uh, business. They would they would be friendly with each other. They would promote their own their own trade and their own politics. Uh, and they would uh, arrange marriages. It's one of the main things. There was... Uh, they would have their young boys there, and I think, and uh, people dispute this with me, but I think they would bring daughters with them too. Uh-huh. And, the, and the daughters could look over the boys, and the boys look over the daughters, but mostly the parents, the fathers would say. Arranged hey, marriages. Yeah. Arranged marriages would happen there, and we have testimonies from different authors about indications of this. So, uh, yeah, so it was a hot spot. Um, of uh, you know of trade and commerce, but also of sexuality. I think there were, you got to remember these games were all done, all of the track and field games and the the combat sports were all done in the nude. Uh, the Greeks didn't wear anything when they competed in these games. Really, completely, completely, completely nude. No sandals, nothing. Um, wow. Except for the race in armor, where they where they had a helmet, clearly, yes, and a shield and so on. But. Um, the uh yeah they they were they would wrestle naked they would box naked uh they would wear boxing gloves of a kind of primitive sort just wrapping leather around their fists but actually that would actually make the scarring worse sometimes cuz the leather would cut you that's for sure so uh yeah so they would um, but this is uh the the greeks were sort of famous or infamous for for their naked sports and and th- this is why um we have the word gymnasium because the, gym, the name gymnasium is a Greek name. It's a training area for Greek athletes, but it means the place where you go naked because the word gymnos in Greek is naked. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, and it's to us in our puritanical whatever, it might seem a little weird and so on, but the Greeks were kind of comfortable with their bodies. And, of course, yes, we know that. For, Certainly you can statues. tell by the sculpture and by the art that they were very comfortable that way. Yeah. And they're, de- they're depicting their heroes basically in uh, Olympian postures. Right, right. And, and their gods, of course, were naked too. So, you know, nothing was hidden and the human form was sort of uh, an object of marvel and of, you know, of honor and sacredness in their own way. Um, and, uh, and, and, and at the same time, it was sexy. It was... It was sexy to watch these these young men compete, um, and uh, you know they would oil their skin uh, when they were competing. So that you would have a kind of, you know, they get a great suntan from this. <laughs> they put bet. olive oil on, and and uh, they would have gleaming uh, bodies that would be gleaming like the bronze statues that were in the That's in the uh, sanctuary. So it was, you know, the the. Uh, 
the women, if they, the, the girls would see them and they would say, oh, you know, he's attractive, and the men would say, geez, I wish I looked that good. And so they would, there would be real kind of competition on that level, too. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was a real sort of social event as well as, as the, uh, you know, the different uh, competitions. The, the thing that was really expensive to put on were the chariot races, of course, because imagine trying to get uh, horses and chariots all the way to Greece if you're over in Sicily and Italy. Right, of course. Or from Asia Huge Minor. Huge expense. Huge expense. Yeah. And a lot of mobilization, of course. Um, we're going to take a break again, and uh, we will be back very shortly and continue our discussion with Dr. Tom Scanlon on the emergence and the uh, form and practice of the Olympic Games in ancient Greece and beyond after these words. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Are you a homeowner or hope to be one? Looking for the best deal or a stress-free sale? Tune in to House Talk and keep from making a costly mistake. Host Duncan Smythe will guide you through the painstaking and maybe profitable real estate process, giving you tips on everything from listing and staging to negotiating and home inspections. Overwhelming? It doesn't have to be. Let House Talk help you. Tune in Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. 
Joe Schildenrein back again with this episode, uh, present episode on the Olympic Games in our today's broadcast on Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We're talking to Dr. Thomas Scanlon, who's providing some very fascinating insights on the growth of the Olympic Games in the wake of the uh, Sochi competitions of a couple of weeks ago, or last week even. Um, Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of the progression of the games, the additions to the competitions, and the eventual worldwide circulation of the venues uh, after after the period of the decline of the Greek civilization and the Greek Empire, rather. Right. Well, uh, so at the sort of high point of these games, as I said, they went on for five days, and they had they had a full list of chariot races, horse races. Um, they had contests for trumpeters and heralds to introduce the the events, uh, but mostly uh, track and field. We call them track and field events. They had uh, I haven't mentioned the uh, pentathlon, which is obviously five events for them, including the discus throwing, which is the famous image we see of discus thrower, the, of ja- the javelin throwing, the jumping. Uh, and it was uh, finished off with wrestling and a foot race. Um, now, you know, we, were, we always say, oh, the discus, that was the great Greek event, and it was only found in the pentathlon, and the javelin was only found in the pentathlon, and the jumping was. So there were three unique events there. Um, and um, they were, if I may just say, they were a little weird, too, because... The discus, of course, you know sort of what that looks like and how it goes today. I think the ancient wasn't too much different. The right. Ja- the javelin, they used uh, a wooden javelin, of course, and then they had a leather strap that you would wind around the shaft of the javelin and put your fingers in a loop and then hurl it using the strap to twist it and give it extra torque and actually helped it to, it gave it distance and direction. Um, and then finally, the jumping it was just a long jump with weights. You'd carry five-pound weights, one in each hand, and you would run with these weights and then push them into the air, holding on to them, and take your leap and then drop them in mid-leap. So actually, I've done this, and the, the weights actually give you extra, if you do it right, and it's quite difficult, they give you extra distance on your jump. So um, anyway, that's uh, these are all kind of part of this weird pentathlon event, right. which uh, the winner of that really has good technique in all these different, and is a well-balanced athlete. So um, so anyway, Joe, the, the events kind of filled up, and then into the Roman period in the 200s, 100s BCE, and into the, the imperial period, the 100s, 200s, 300s um, CE, there was uh, pretty much a stable uh, a stable event, a series of events right. uh, didn't expand. But then the question is, how did those Olympics end? And it was essentially, I think, one word, Christianity. And the Christian emperors uh, emerged and started to forbid pagan festivals. Theodosius the right. II is the guy who was credited with uh, actually saying no more pagan festivals in around 300 and uh, so, the but there were Olympic Games going on pretty vibrantly up until then, 
they didn't sort of peter out, as far as we can tell. And there's evidence of victors into the 300s, early 300s CE. So, uh, so that was, you know, and then Christianity came, and there was a whole different ethos about naked bodies and about spending your time, you know, doing sports instead of meditating and going to um, church and so on. So, so what, you, what you're saying is that Christianity killed the fun, huh? Yeah, I think so, because, well, it has a different view of the body, or at least early Christianity had a different view of the body, and it was more an inward-looking than outward-looking sure. philosophy. So, um, and then revival occurred when? The revival in the, in the 19th century, um, again, spurred on by the, the archaeology of the Olympic site, the Germans started to dig up uh, what we now know as the ancient site of Olympia, and from that emerged an interest in reviving the Olympic Games. Um, I should say, there's a lot of scholarship on this, but the the real people who should get mentioned are the, the modern Greeks, the Greek peoples themselves. They uh-huh. had never forgotten the Games, and even before the Germans were excavating, they were trying to to revive their own Olympics in Greece, and there were several attempts to do this. But um, the real successful attempt came with a Frenchman whose name was uh, Baron Pierre Coubertin, and he launched this initiative for an international set of games and finally put it together uh, so that the first modern Olympics began in 1896. Um, We had the centenary of that in Atlanta in 1996, Right, uh, I remember that, yes. So uh, so anyway, so it's been going 100 years, and, and that's kind of the, uh, early, the earliest games for the, the modern Olympics. We had a somewhat ancient cast to them. They had the, the um, discus throwing as a single event, and they had running events and track and field, and that's fine. They added things like swimming and boating and stuff, which weren't in the ancient games. And they added at the end of the games, instead of this race in armor, they added a marathon race. Now, uh-huh. the funny thing is, the closing of the games with the marathon, this, what we have, the summer games with the marathon race, is uh, you think, oh, that's a nice peaceful, but it's an absolute epic feat of running. Uh, but for the ancients, it was connected with warfare. Uh, that is to say, the, mar- the word marathon was a battle. 490 mm-hmm. uh, BCE, when the Greeks defeated the Persian barbarians. And uh, when this battle, this called the Battle of Marathon, at one point there was a uh, herald, a runner, who had to run all the way from Marathon to Sparta to try to get the Spartans to help the, the Athenians. And he ran, it took him like almost two days. He ran Jeez. there and he yes. ran back. And uh, anyway, uh, in the end... Um, uh, the the uh, the marathon race that was revived in 1896 was modeled on not a real event but on a military you know running of running uh, episode in the Persian Wars. So I you know I wonder about this too. Why did some scholar and it was there was a um, scholar a French scholar who who thought this would be a great idea. Uh, why would he reach back to a military-related episode to to close the Olympic Games? And um, absolutely, yeah. So anyway, I'm not sure the answer to that, but it's it, it may have to do with European politics in the 1890s. 
Um, the other interesting thing I would add is that, you know, women were slow to getting into the modern Olympics, and women's events were added. I don't have the exact timetable here, but the women doing um, sort of running events or uh, swimming events started in like the 1920s or so. Uh, but um, it was a slow progress, and you see even today there's some disparity between events that men have and women don't and so on. Um, to me, the most one of the most astonishing things is that the marathon race um, was... I don't know if you know, Joe, when was the first marathon race open to women in the modern Olympics? What year that was I added? I have no idea. Well, I don't it know was 1984 in Los Angeles. Oh right. Here, right. Here. So that was, I mean, so here it was sort of almost 100 years into the, the modern Olympics before women could run the marathon. And actually women are damn good at running the marathon. Extremely. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of a stunning, stunning fact that 30 years ago, women started running the marathon uh, formally for the Olympics. So there's a real sort of interesting questions that are prompted by this, which is, what is it about sports that connects it sort of more with men than women? I mean, uh, I mean of course, women do play sports and, and compete in sports and publicly do so. Uh, and we have Title IX agreements to ensure that they're given opportunities but generally speaking, the public interest is in watching men compete. Right. Not but it's so, about money and power, I guess. Is, yeah, is what money and power and testosterone or something like that. And testosterone, of yeah. course. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there are physical differences in you know, size and so on. But um, it's an interesting thing to, to ask the questions of how gender relates to sports. And the, the modern Olympics are sort of evening out the playing field, I think. But, and they're doing it relatively quickly. Yes. Yeah. It seems at this point, I mean, it's it's really just becoming a question of how quickly will it be assimilated and evened out. And you can see, I mean, like you say, it it, it all started in uh, certainly with the marathon in '84, and then all of a sudden, uh, every every Olympics, it seems like there is uh, another major event that women get, are getting involved in, right. and and that is certainly accelerating the profile and evening out the situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would like to think that uh, over, you know, in the not-too-distant future, there would be equal interest in watching women and men compete, not, not just women being allowed to compete, but there being equal interest, and certainly the television coverage is pretty even on men's and women's events. Seems to be, at least here. No, I'm not sure how it is in other countries, Yeah, but it is here, and, and in some other countries, I've seen it, it being very egalitarian in that sense, but not everywhere, clearly. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 for other than the Olympics, there's a real imbalance in sports coverage of men's versus women's, uh, whatever whatever you want to say, baseball or uh, tennis or whatever. I mean, there's sure, there's, sure, that's true. So I don't know why that happens, but there it is. It's it's in the the amount of column inches devoted in newspapers to men's versus women events is much. It's a great disparity there too. So uh, I'm sounding no like a feminist here. I sort of am, but, but uh, yeah, there's. I think uh, it's not. I'm not actually trying to push some feminist agenda here. I'm saying I think it's an interesting thing to observe and ask why human beings seem to be more interested, or why is sports in origin a kind of a male thing more than female? I don't know. 
I think that's a that's a historical question uh, that is to some very clearly reflected probably in the evolution of the Olympics and uh, yeah. again you know one of, one of the, I think one of the even more specifically and uh, one of the more rudimentary questions that you raise in, in in discussing the Olympics generally is this enormous hiatus between AD 300 and 1896 yes. when it's not happening at all. Yes. Yes. And then there is, of course, the infusion of memory and uh, the glorification, I suspect, uh, of, of Greece in, in, in the revival of that glorification in yeah. the past hundred some odd years yeah. since uh, since it's it's all reemerged and and uh, I think that's all for the good. I mean, it, it's certainly uh, creating a sense of uh, uh, internationalism that's consistent with the global world, with the globalization, and uh, for better or worse, that's the way of the world, and it's probably just as well yeah. that yeah. Uh, that this type of internationalism and uh, at least a pro forma. Uh, impression or creation of an impression of fairness and equality, which we all know is is is, is not the reality, but certainly yeah. an ostensible, aspiring, aspirational kind of objective, which is all for the good. Now, yeah. uh, sort of takes us full circle to what the Russians are going to be doing <laughs> next. They've, they've hosted the Olympic Games, yeah. and uh, we all, nobody knows where that's going. But it's certainly some very interesting food for thought going forward. And, and at, this, at this point, I, I'm sorry to say that we've, we've, we really have come full circle as, as we have to close the door on this, on this program and broadcast. But I want to thank you so much, Tom Scanlon, for, for participating in the program and, and stimulating some thinking on the, uh, on the question of the Olympics. And uh, we look forward to a follow-up sometime in the not-too-distant future. Okay, Joe. I enjoy that very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, thanks so much, and until next time, we'll see you again on Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Thanks so much, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.